0: Oh hello, you paltry, salty Garibaldis. Welcome to week number twelve of the Blind Boy Podcast. We are still number one in the podcast charts because of the actions of you glorious cans. Because of your actions, because of you. Liking the podcast and leaving some delicious, delectable reviews. Reviews so mouthwatering that I want to fry them in batter and eat them with a yard of cod. Thank you for those lovely delicious reviews. Mmm, my tummy is full from all of those reviews. I am satiated. But I'll be hungry again. So please leave more reviews on the podcast and rate it highly and like it. And tell a friend, tell a postman about it. Tell an undertaker Tell us a steeple chaser Tell a wagon driver That he needs to subscribe to this podcast For it will fill holes in his soul That he did not know existed Tell the postman About your podcast hug And see if he doesn't get creeped out Tell him about the man from Limerick That talks into your ear About love and life and then stare him straight into the eye. As you receive your parcel. Or your Bart. If you live in the Gael Tucked. Shout out to all the boys in Connemara. The recipients of Bart. Non-stop Bart over there. Parcels, parcels, parcels. All day. What did we talk about last week? Last week I didn't give you a full proper podcast because I was under the weather. I was ill. I had um, a little hint of a sore throat and a runny nose and an old small bit of a chest. Fairly standard flu situation, but, um, which was grand. But a flu is not conducive to recording pleasurable podcasts. So I gave you a short story instead and this short story was called hugged up studded blood puppet which is one of my favorite short stories from the book that i wrote because it's the most cinematic when i was writing it i fully felt like i was watching a film in my head Um, i could see how it was lit and i could see how it was going to be filmed and all of this stuff and I really enjoyed writing that story... ...and I quite liked the plot... ...and I would love to turn that story... ...into a screenplay of some description... ...and... ...it ironically... ...it it ended up half predicting... ...that mad film that... ...came out there on Netflix... ...The Foreigner... ...where Pierce Brosnan plays Jerry Adams... ...and... ...Jackie Chan... ...is... ...a Kung Fu man from China... ...who has to fight the IRA... ...and has to fight Jerry Adams... ...and... I ended up ironically predicting that film in that story, hugged up studded blood puppet, with a uh, a fictional film in the story called Black Forty Seven Triad Paddy. But I liked writing it, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um. Oh yes, an award was won during the week. Um, Easons had a poll of the. The readers' favorite books of 2017, and the Gospel According to Blind Boy, was voted Eason's readers' favorite book of 2017. So, if you are an Eason's reader and you voted in that, thank you very much. I mean, it's nice to get an award. The other thing as well, you know, a couple of podcasts ago, I spoke about, you know, when when it comes to maintaining my creative vigor it's very important for me to to not take positive criticism or negative criticism on board not positive criticism not to take praise on board and not to take negative criticism on board that's what I find in my experience you gotta you gotta deflect both you gotta deflect praise and you gotta deflect criticism you must only create for you and for your own personal aesthetics And when you start thinking about what other people like or what other people don't like, you lose your creative heart. So that's quite challenging because I'm happy to win that award and I'm I'm proud of it. But at the same time, I have to kind of just very mindfully just kind of walk past it. I just have to, I have to treat that award like a friendly dog. That, you know, I imagine I'm, I'm walking along on a path and it's a lovely day and across the way there's some begrudgers throwing shit at me i have to just peacefully avoid their shit and walk on and ignore the shit that's been thrown but also this beautiful friendly golden retriever comes up the pathway and his tail is wagging and his eyes have a sparkle in him and he comes up with his lovely wet nose and places it in my palm and it feels exhilarating and he wags his tail and looks at me and then jumps up and places his two paws on my chest and i give him a little hug and that golden retriever ladies and gentlemen is that award and i must give that golden retriever a gentle hug a little pat on the head but i can't feed him i have to walk on and and that golden retriever will try and follow me but i have to say no go home and i carry on in my journey and acknowledge that i've i've seen the golden retriever but i must carry on forward so that's how i treat positive uh, praise It's great, golden retrievers are wonderful. Meeting a nice dog is a great experience. But, you know, you start throwing them treats, you start being too nice, then you're after kidnapping someone's dog, and that brings a whole load of shit on top of your life. In the same way that taking positive praise on board too much will destroy your creativity. Because, like I mentioned, that would mean that my locus of evaluation moves from being internal to external and if you have an external locus of evaluation if you value yourself your value as a person by an aspect of your behavior you will find yourself in a position of low self-esteem and this period of low self-esteem will destabilize my mental health and i'm sure you've heard me say that many a time you'll probably notice from my voice that uh i'm still a little bit sick and... I'm not sick, I'm fully functional. I feel great. It's just... It feels like Serena Williams drove a tennis ball down my nose and it's politely lodged in the back of my throat. And I'm just kind of waiting for it to jettison during the night. So my voice is a little bit off, but it's grand. Small bit nasal. But being sick was... Do you know it was nice? I don't get sick often. But... Sometimes... Getting sick can be... I don't know, it can be... It can give you a nice contemplative space... I'm a very... I'm quite driven all the time, you know... I like to keep myself busy... And I I don't... I don't relax a lot... I'm always doing something... But when you're struck down with an illness... You don't really have a choice... That's when you have to go... Well fuck it, I'm getting nothing done... So... I'll watch a bit of Netflix play a video game that's what i did i haven't played video games in about a year because my xbox got the what's known as the red ring of death about a year and a half ago where it just stops working and i didn't replace it and this i think this is a fantastic thing because i think if i had an xbox over the past year a functional one i don't know how much of that book i would have written and i found this the past week Now I went and downloaded an absolutely beautiful game. Called Ori and the Blind Forest. Which is. It's kind of a. It's a platform game. In the way that Super Mario is. With a little bit of Echo the Dolphin. But it's a. It's a wonderful game. It's. Has a one. Unreal soundtrack. And. The story is, is beautiful. The design of it. The feel of it is. Is very calming you know and the storyline it it rewards compassion there's no such thing as a baddie in Ori and the Blind Forest which I loved Uh, in the storyline who you believe to be your enemies it always gives the backstory of the enemy and the pain behind why your enemy is acting like a dickhead and I loved the game I I I enjoyed it I played it for about (coughs) 4 days I cleared it cleared it fully and had a lovely experience and I allowed myself this because I was sick there was nothing else I was going to do so it was like drink a lot of tea you know take a bit of Sudafed uh, have a lot of oranges and play a video game for four days and I did it and it was enjoyable but however and <clears throat> now I downloaded this onto my PC that's what I did I, I downloaded Steam and I downloaded it from Steam I didn't get my Xbox working but I was going to buy a new PlayStation or a new Xbox or something. And I'm not going to now. Because what I realised is. Because I have another book to write this year you know. and I have a few other projects. Quite demanding projects. And what I found with myself in video games. And I realised that now I haven't been away from them for a year even if I allow myself one hour a day, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'd am be able to discipline myself around that, you know, one hour a day of, of video games. I personally think for me, right now I'm just speaking for myself, I think video games, they tick certain boxes in my mind that creativity usually tick. <clears throat> I found after playing a video game, it was kind of exciting the reward centers and pleasure centers of my brain so that's what my mind kind of fixated on it fixated on clearing this game and it was like i i downloaded my imagination into somebody else's imagination so i don't think that i would have a creative in, an incentive to be making short stories or coming up with ideas ...if I'm actively playing a video game... ...even if it's for an hour a day... ...so... ...I'm not going to be buying a Playstation... ...anytime soon... ...not what I've got books to write... ...so... ...that's a nice little observation I made... ...as a result of that short bout of... ...sore-throatedness I had... ...whatever the fuck it was... ...or still is... ...the art... ...and... ...that process there that I described... ...is... ...you know... ...you might have heard me before... ...talking about emotional intelligence... ...and... I use that as my part of my regime for my own mental hygiene, my mental health. That there is emotional intelligence in action. That's me um mindfully and actively checking in with my emotions to see how how I'm getting on and to treat my to treat my life like I'm a scientist. So th- that's kind of that's kind of what it is if I'm I'm generally, I'm generally very happy a lot of the time. You know, I said my, if, if I had to rate my happiness, um, I'm usually around an 8 out of 10. And a 10 would be when you receive some incredibly good news. So I'm pretty much very happy all the time because I actively um, look after my mental health. When I feel myself getting irritated, uh, angry with other people, angry with myself, then this takes me away from my happiness slightly. So when that happens, I bring in my emotional intelligence. I start asking myself, what changes in in my life recently? What am I doing differently that might cause this very slight irritation? And for me, it was playing video games. It's like, Well, okay, I'm feeling a bit irritated and I'm playing video games. Okay, maybe that's one of the reasons. Why is that? And I looked at it and it's like, yeah, it's um, giving me a sense of accomplishment when nothing real was actually accomplished. And that's, for me, as a creative person, that's not great. For you, it could be fine. Everybody's different, you know. Not everybody is into writing or into painting or making music. What it boils down to is is personal meaning. Me, what gives me personal meaning is creating something. I know people, and they get personal meaning from uh, doing maths. Do you know, I've got buddies who would be would absolutely hate writing. They hate the written word, but the idea of balancing their own accounts, we'll say, even though even though they don't have to would bring them an intense sense of calm and joy so that's their personal meaning and if if i'm to, to you know we're after getting into 2018 people make new year's resolutions i would suggest to you a good new year's resolution would be to find your sense of personal meaning find what what is it in your own life that gives you um you really enjoy doing that's that thing that allows you to achieve what i've referred to as the state of flow the state of intense and absolute concentration and happiness whereby no worries are allowed in no stress is allowed in in very intense flow even things like sexual desire and hunger aren't allowed in because you exist as a pure level of concentration try and find that thing in your life it could be sports, it could be colouring in, do you know? In my book I actually included a colouring in section for that reason, because some people might like to colour in. Doing the dishes, cleaning the garden, anything, you know? Counting kinds, playing with a Japanese sand garden, I don't know. But importantly you have to realise is that it definitely exists for you if you don't know what it is yet it is there it is out there for you and it depends on you know people who are introverted like myself we kind of have it easier because we like to spend a lot of time by ourselves and to do little activities but some people are extroverted so extroverted people can find their flow in other people in social situations in a game of fucking cards. I don't know what extroverted people do because I'm so unbelievably introverted. But for flow to occur, the thing you must kind of look for, you have to seek out an activity that's um voluntary, you know, no one's forcing you to do it and it's enjoyable. It's motivational for the very sake of doing it you know a certain level of skill should be required in what you're doing and there should be a bit of a challenge too with goals towards success in it but you should feel as though you have control and receive immediate feedback with some room for growth and flow is characterized by strangely the complete lack of emotion when you're doing it you have no sense of consciousness whatsoever it just happens Um. We all experienced it when we were kids... Whether we were playing with Lego... Or... Playing with crayons... And we tend to kind of... Drift out of it a bit as we get older... For me I experience flow as a waking state of dreaming... It's like... Dreaming... It's like controlling daydreams... But I'm autonomously controlling it... Like I'm floating outside of myself... It's just a a pure beam of energy... Sound like a lunatic now... But you might be asking... Line by why are you talking about flow again you've spoken about flow in many podcasts um well the reason is to be honest is the field of positive psychology has found that flow is there's a very definite link between contact with a flow state and continual levels of happiness and it's not just modern psychology that found found this the ancient chinese knew about this podcast a few weeks ago spoke about collectivism versus individualism and the holistic nature of collectivist thinking well there was a chinese philosopher oh god i'm gonna try and pronounce his name Zhuangzi and he referred to flow as the ultimate happiness now this fella was knocking around fucking years ago and he used to observe he called it a stage of letting go where when flow happens you you let go and you transcend your ego to become a kind of a, a pure energy you know but he saw flow in artisans not necessarily in artists in craftsmen and butchers and i'm going to read a few excerpts now of this Zhuangzi and how he was observing a butcher in flow and what he said was at every touch of his hand, every heave of his shoulder, every move of his feet, every thrust of his knee, zip zoop, he slithered the knife along with a zing, and all was in perfect rhythm, as though he were performing the dance of the Mulberry Grove, or keeping time with the Ching Shao music, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about there, but he's describing a, a butcher that he was watching, who was in this intense, uh, intense land of skill and happiness. And when this Chinese philosopher went and actually spoke to the butcher and asked him, you know, what's the crack, what's going on, what, what, what's up with your, your technique, why are you so focused when you're slicing up an animal? And the butcher said, what I care about is the way, which goes beyond skill. When I first began cutting up oxen, all I could see was the ox itself. After three years, I no longer saw the whole ox and now, now I go at it by spirit, and don't look with my eyes, perception and understanding have come to a stop, and spirit moves but at once, however, when I come to a complicated place, I size up the difficulties, tell myself to watch out and be careful, keep my eyes on what I'm doing, work very slowly and move the knife with the greatest subtlety, until flop, the whole thing comes apart like a cloud of earth crumbling to the ground. I stand there holding the knife and look all around me, completely satisfied and reluctant to move on. And then I wipe off the knife and put it away. So that's a Chinese butcher from a few hundred years ago, <clears throat> describing to a philosopher his state of flow when he is practicing that thing that gives him a sense of meaning. And when I, when I read that, it's like yeah, that is identical to my own sense of flow when I'm writing a short story or writing a song or anything it's, it's, a, it's a sense of doing something, when, when I write a story it reveals itself to me, it happens in front of the page and, and a huge story, 12,000 words 16,000 words, an entire plot fucking subplot structure, I don't plan it out it happens it reveals itself like I'm watching a film in this intense state of concentration where I'm not even aware I'm writing a story it's like I'm in a dream and it's just coming out and like that butcher described you know when he comes to a difficult part in the meat maybe a dodgy bone and this challenge might engage the kind of the critical part of his brain that would take him out of flow it doesn't happen it's like he autonomously sizes up the difficulty and autonomously, without being aware of it, is cautious of it and s- manages to solve the problem while still in a state of flow. And that's the same with me when I'm writing. That's how I feel if I'm in a state of flow when I'm painting. And now I haven't painted in 10 fucking years. I used to get a good, decent state of flow when I was painting. And then, like I said before, rare, more rare in music musical flow for me is uh, is quite rare when it does happen i fucking nail it but when it doesn't i'm just kind of going through the motions but if i sit down with a keyboard and write i'm pretty much guaranteed flow 90 percent of the time so for you in 2018 have a lash every day at fi- finding that thing that gives you that sense of flow that sense of happiness and search through your childhood, because chances are you had it when you were a kid, and you just because of school or because of responsibilities or whatever you stopped doing that thing that gave you flow, probably because society said that it was silly and foolish and messy. you know it could have been playing with play though like I mentioned Carl Jung a few weeks ago, Carl Jung used to go to the bottom of his garden and play, you know get his fucking knees muddy and play with sticks. Every day of his life until he was dead. An old man. Because he understood for the importance of mental health and his own consciousness. To be involved in play. And that's all he did. He just fucked around with mud and sticks. Because that's what he did when he was three years of age. And it helped him to daydream. But if we take it to more modern times. Modern psychology. Um, the psychologist who is. I suppose coined the term flow and who is the leader of the field of positive psychology is a lad called in Mihai mad looking name i think he's uh croatian or russian or something but chixan mihai in a bizarre case of synchronicity one day he attended a, a lecture in switzerland uh, at this speaker he didn't know who the speaker was and this speech that he heard was so inspirational that he went off and founded the field of positive psychology and started to research into flow. The speaker of course was Carl Jung himself and Chicks and Mihai didn't know. But Chicks and Mihai and positive psychology holds that happiness happiness depends upon flow and how much flow that you can experience in your day-to-day life depending on what it is. Depending on your activity of personal meaning. And what Csikszentmihalyi and Mihai identified as, you know, when you're looking at a, a, a candidate, a, an activity that could be a candidate for you to achieve flow, he has a diagram. And you must look for something that's both challenging and requires skill. Now, it can't be too challenging, because if it's too challenging, then you start to experience anxiety and this anxiety will lead to self-criticism and frustration and it will not get you to stay the state of flow it also has to require a certain level of skill but not so much skill that you can't do it because that too will lead to boredom and more anxiety so it's about finding that happy ground where it's something that you're definitely handy at <clears throat> definitely something that comes natural to you and the more intensely that you kind of challenge yourself and use your skill and let the skill and challenge feed off each other this gradually like you're falling asleep lulls you into what he calls the flow channel and when you're in the flow channel you're not aware of it but you eventually move towards intense ecstasy and happiness and this you know like meditation as well If this is present in your life, every single day, you will be a happy person. You know, independent of external circumstances. In a lot of cases, Chicks and Mihai is highly critical of watching television and using social media. He believes that these practices lead to boredom and apathy. Uh, and stemming from that frustration and anger and me personally you know let's have some hot takes why not you know I often wonder I often use the field of, of positive psychology and flow psychology to wonder is is this apathy that social media can bring Is is this why social media can be so toxic sometimes when you're flying through your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed when all of us when any of us are doing it we're very you are very easily triggered into a extreme emotional response when you see something that we disagree with you know when you look at the comments under a, an article and you see someone and they're saying something you don't like and you just get angry and want to call them a, a goal whereas this wouldn't happen if you were enjoying yourself, this would this would not happen in a, in a state of flow. And I often wonder: is the the apathy which is produced from these passive activities does this feed into the the toxicity of the social media environment? I wonder. I sound a bit like uh, a Minions meme that your grandmother would share at that moment, but it is worth noting that social media is a toxic place where lovely nice people can all of a sudden be transformed into quite hateful people who express very black and white rigid and aggressive views um because i refuse to believe that every every horrible comment i read online i know people who write horrible comments i know them in real life and i have pints with them and they're just like me and you they have their moments where they're angry they have their moments where they're not angry but I've seen people who write horrible things spoken to them about it and they're not filled with hate they're just worrying that one moment in time and that does give me a lot of hope because the internet is a sewer and comment sections are a sewer on the other side of the coin I've spoken about the podcast Hug which is what I attempt to achieve with this podcast I I don't think podcasts produce apathy in the listener i know from the responses that i get i know myself from listening to podcasts because i think podcasts require they engage your ears only and they require you to visualize with your mind reading does the same thing podcasts to consume a podcast is quite participatory Scrolling through social media isn't really that participatory, or watching television. It's being fed to you, and you can sit back and, you know, you're like a goose that's having its liver fattened for figra, figra, gras. Five gras, five gras. Don't know how to pronounce it. I've never eaten it. But podcasts don't do that. If when when you're listening to this podcast, you know, I'd love to see someone's brain under a scanner listening to a podcast versus scrolling through Instagram. I think the podcast does ask more of you the listener and it's a more intense participatory experience where I won't say you experience flow while listening to a podcast but it's not far off it it's meditative and calming and it's most certainly focused and it's rejuvenating and that's why people love podcasts that's why I love podcasts when I listen to them you feel good you feel like you've done something good, you don't come away you never come away sluggish from a podcast you will come away sluggish from an hour of Facebook or an hour of an hour of video games unfortunately maybe it's because of what it does to your eyes, it can be tiring on the eyes but with a podcast you can just lash in the earphones, go out for a nice walk, it'll reduce your breathing and there is a slight, a little element of flow to a podcast to appreciating one. I think maybe that's a hot, hot take. But you know what, lads? This is the place for hot takes. Um, when I was describing that, that flow there, you know, I want to be cautious of when I say that something revealed itself on the page. There's a lot of writers, out not a lot of writers, but a few writers believe that like, the universe has handed the story to them. Which is bullshit. It's not the fucking universe. It's the product of your own unconscious mind... In the same way that... Where dreams come from, you know? You never wake up from a dream marvelling going... Where did that come from? It's your own unconscious mind just figuring shit out. Interestingly... Last week when I was playing video games for those few days... I had dreams. I don't get dreams. I, I never get dreams. Now the reason... The, I think the reason I don't get dreams... Well I don't recall them. I probably do dream when I'm sleeping. But I never wake up with them. I think it's because. I I write too much during the day. And I create too much during the day. And I think that tires out that part of my brain. So when I go to sleep. My brain doesn't need to remember dreams. But last week. I was getting dreams during the night. Because I was playing video games. And I think it's because I wasn't creating. That I was getting these dreams. But. I dreamt that. There's this rapper from Dublin called Reggie Snow. He's a buddy of mine, and I dreamt that me and Reggie were outside my house, and we found a spider web, and the spider web had lights on it, and we discovered that this spider web was connected to nature's internet, and it was sending light signals to all the plants, and they were interconnected with these lights because of this spider web, and then we got chased by someone who may have been key for Sutherland, I'm not sure, because we couldn't tell anyone about the secret, about the internet spiderweb, and I woke up from it, first thing I did was I mailed Reggie to tell him, but uh, I woke up from it and I was kind of self-flagellating, because I thought it was like an arrogant dream, I was gone for fuck's sake man, You think that you and Reggie now, you're great artists... And you understand the internet of the world that no one can see you pretentious cunt. Cop on yourself. And I gave it a bit of analysis because I, you know, I don't get dreams... So I'll have a think about it. And I was searching for depth. Going, what does this mean? What is the spider web internet? And then I realised... It's the fucking plot of the video game you've been playing all week, you stupid cunt. Ori and the Blind Forest. The whole plot of the game is it's like super mario but you're in this forest and there's like this internet of interconnected light that gives the whole forest life and that light is stolen by an angry crow and you have to reconnect the light of the forest so that was my deep dream i had rehashed the plot of a video game and claimed it for myself and somehow written reggie snow and Kiefer soderland into it so that's why I, I won't be playing video games in 2018. Because it'll fuck up my creativity. Um, usually around this point of the podcast, we have a little pause for an advert. Known as the Ocarina Pause, where I play my little clay Spanish ocarina. And depending on the algorithm, you will either hear an advert or an ocarina. Well, this week I've misplaced my ocarina, I don't know where it is, it's somewhere in that pile of jocks over there, but instead what I'll do is I'm going to play a little little bit of slide guitar because the ocarina is misplaced, so you're either going to hear a small phrase of slide guitar or the ocarina, an advert I mean, sorry. So what I'm kind of realising this week based on the past 35 minutes of ranting is that a theme is emerging for this week's podcast and the theme so far is that everything I've spoken about today I've already spoken about in a previous podcast Now I don't want you thinking blind he has gone mad he's talking about shit he's spoken about before because i don't want to turn into joe rogan you know i like joe rogan but you listen to his podcast and fucking you know joe rogan he'll, he'll go on a rant about dmt whenever he hears a church bell he talks about dmt every single podcast and we've heard it before joe and i fear that Flo is turning into my dmt which is ironic because they both do similar things except one of them is internally generated. But no, I'm fully aware that I'm talking about topics from previous podcasts. But this week, I was speaking about flow from a different angle, with a different level of interrogation, because it's something that's on my mind all the time. In keeping with this theme, there's somewhat something else that I'd like to revisit and re and expand upon. and this is the colour blue a few podcasts back I spoke about Caravaggio and the economics of renaissance painting and how you know I had a hot take that the reason Caravaggio's paintings are mostly black is because he was trying to save money because the most expensive colour was blue Because blue came from the semi-precious stone lapis lazuli. Which was. Came from one mine in Afghanistan. And was more expensive than gold. And this blue. This lapis lazuli colour. Ultramarine. Is the reason that Holy Mary was painted blue. In paintings because. That's the most expensive colour. Painter the most expensive colour. But there's something I wanted to speak about with blue that I didn't go into in, in the last podcast because I just I didn't have time but out of all the colours blue for me is by far the most fucking interesting because there is a hot, hot take there is a very very interesting theory about the colour blue and that theory is that blue is a very recent invention I don't mean The ability to paint it. But I mean. The actual colour blue itself. The ability of the human brain. To recognise the colour blue. Is only a couple of thousand years old. Do you remember back a few years ago in 2015. A photograph of a dress. Went massively viral online. And. Some viewer was buying a dress on, on fucking ebay or somewhere whatever. And it divided the internet the dress was blue and black it was a a blue dress with black lines but some people saw it myself included as a white dress with gold lines and when I showed this to I showed it to my buddy and I said what colour is this dress and they go it's blue and black and I thought they were trolling me I thought that there was like because to me this dress was fucking it was white and gold it was white and gold to me and my buddy saw it as black and blue and I thought they were trolling I thought there was some secret on the internet where everyone had spoken to each other and it's like if someone says that this is white and gold just tell him it's black and blue but no two people with sets of eyes in their heads were seeing the exact same thing in two very very different ways and it was flabbergasting to see that you know and to know that another person is is seeing something completely different to how I'm seeing it and it got people talking about the colour blue and researching into the colour blue more and this conversation goes all the way back to 1858 with a boy called William Gladstone the same William Gladstone who went on to become Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain he was a Prime Minister in 1858 while Ireland was a colony of Britain so therefore he's automatically a cunt but this is an interesting observation. So Gladstone was a bit of a scholar and he went looking back into the famous book The Odyssey. It's a Greek book by Homer and I think it's about I, I'm not sure it's about 3,000 years old three 4,000 years old It was written 800 years BCE, so that's almost 3,000 years old. So Gladstone started flicking through the Odyssey, written by Homer. Um, Worth noting as well, Ulysses by James Joyce was very much based upon the Odyssey. Um, Which ironically should make Ulysses a work of postmodernism and not modernism, in my opinion, because it was a pastiche of something that previously existed. But that's for another podcast but anyway while Gladstone was looking through the odyssey he started listing out all the colours that Homer was talking about for whatever reason I don't know but Gladstone noticed that Homer did not use the colour blue at any point do you know what I mean like he described the sea as a wine dark sea why not you know the blue sea He was describing, Homer described honey as green. He described sheep as violet. It's like, what the fuck are you on, Homer? And it's very, very strange. Black is mentioned 200 times. White is mentioned around 100 times. And there's not that many mentions of other colours. There's a couple of reds. 15 times for reds and then there's less than 10 mentions of yellow and green but zero mention of blue whatsoever so Gladstone fair play to him because that's you know 1858 that is some observation to be making so he goes what the fuck is going on where's the blue in the Odyssey so he starts looking into other Greek texts and it's the exact same thing nobody mentioned blue at all the word blue didn't exist in Greek times so then another lad called Lazarus Geiger he started looking at what Gladstone was investigating and was like fucking hell Gladstone what's the story man you're onto something so Geiger starts looking at the Quran uh, ancient Hebrew versions of the Bible Vedic hymns and he said these hymns of more than ten thousand lines are brimming with descriptions of the heavens scarcely any subject is evoked more frequently the sun and reddening dawns play of color day and night cloud and lightning the air and ether all these are unfolded before us again and again but there is one thing no one could ever learn from these ancient songs and that is that the sky is blue there was no blue no book Of ancient times mentioned the colour fucking blue. Ever. So when Geiger started looking more. At you know texts. Historical texts from all around the world. Ancient texts. And. Every language seemed to first have. A word for black. And then a word for white. For like dark and light. And then those were the only words for a while. And then red came about. To describe the colour of blood. Or the colour of wine but still no fucking blue then yellow and green started to appear but the last color that eventually started to become mentioned as an actual color was blue and like the other thing too is blue eyes human human blue eyes they're actually quite rare they're only first off the gene for blue eyes i think it's only about five or six thousand years old And there wasn't a lot of it hopping around the place in ancient Greece. The first culture to develop a word for blue were the Egyptians. And surprisingly they were the only culture at the time that had a way to produce dye that was blue. They made it out of fucking, I don't know what they made it out of, but the Egyptians had blue dye. And then lo and behold they had a word for blue. Now to us, we're thinking, what the fuck? Sure, look, the sky is blue. The sea is blue. This is evident. We can see this. But the theory is, is that. Oh, if, if, if only if only the sky is blue and only the sea is blue, then you, you have no need for a word for it. If, if no other blue exists in, in your actual world, then why would you say something is as blue as? The other thing they think too is that people didn't actually see the sky as blue they saw it as a form of white and as mad as that sounds take it back to that fucking dress that went viral on the internet it's the same crack I saw a white and gold dress my buddy saw a black and blue dress so it's human culture needed to have a referent it needed to have a label for this colour before our brains could actually fucking see it, which is insanity. But it's quite interesting then that, you know, in reference to the previous podcast, that blue then goes on to become such an important colour through the discovery of lapis lazuli, that, you know, this semi-precious stone that creates the colour ultramarine, which is a very pure blue, becomes the most important and most expensive colour in the history of art. That's a colour that defined the career of certain artists it defined the color of the Virgin Mary she was blue because that was expensive and my hot takey mind cannot help but drift towards Jungian synchronicity and whether this is a, 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 a the significance of blue and it's you know it's place in human perception whether is this a Jungian synchronistic event that it became so important then in our consciousness Maybe that's just me talking out of my hope. Probably is. But it, on the subject of... You know, human perception and, and paintings. Another one in the history of painting and art that's quite interesting. I can't give you any reference to this because... I didn't find this story online. This was... The bones of this story were told to me a good few years ago by my Leaving of art teacher, Christy McGrath. But it's an interesting story nonetheless. <clears throat> So, this would have been around the neoclassical period, which I think is the late 17th century. And neoclassical art is... would have been dominated by a painter called Jacques-Louis David. You'd know David's paintings. He famously painted uh, Napoleon. I'm probably off on the 17th century. Could be 18th century as well. Not sure. But, anyway, neoclassical painting is... It's very realistic. It's... It's shit hot. It's brilliant. If... If a neoclassicist painted a painted a man or a dog it really really looked like that thing it's very impressive uh, technical academic painting so anyway it was led by the French and the French at this time were starting to knock around Saudi Arabia which would have been you know a a very sparsely populated desert land uh, populated by tribes of Bedouins and nomads um, tribes of people who they used a lot of horses The, the tribes of Saudi Arabia got around on horseback so the French were heading back and forth I don't know doing some colonial shit and the French got quite friendly with some of these Saudi Arabian or even around Iran these nomadic tribes of horsemen so these Harsi lads, because of their geographical situation, they were Islamic. <clears throat> now there is a within Islam, there's a thing called an iconism and' it's, it's a prescription in Islam whereby you can't create any image of a sentient being. You definitely can't you cannot create any image of God. you definitely can't create an image of Muhammad. Um, as evidenced recently by those assholes in isis who shot up charlie hebdo because someone wanted to draw muhammad but this is where it stems from in islam it is forbidden to create or draw or visually represent any creature that is sentient and created by god because it is seen as kind of arrogant it's like god created these things who the fuck are you to draw them so just don't and this is why in Islamic art. It's geometrical shapes. It's geometric Like if you look at. Uh, there's a place I go to in Spain called Cordoba. Which has some wonderful Islamic art. That's like 1100 years old. And. There's no images of humans or animals. Or anything like that. It's just very intricate geometrical uh, patterns. Because it's the language of mathematics. And Islam believes that the language of God. Is the language of mathematics. So. The respectful thing to draw are mathematical expressions, geometrical expressions. So anyway, these tribes of Islamic lads in Saudi Arabia around the 17th to 18th century, whose daily lives revolved around fucking horses, on horseback all day, simple as that. They, they know nothing more than horses. When the French were coming over, they t- tried to offer these lads some gifts and one of the gifts that the french bought this tribe was a neoclassical painting of a horse so like i said neoclassical paintings are shit hot if it's a painting of a horse it's the best painting of a horse you've ever seen so when they presented this painting to these islamic lads whose lives were nothing but horses they could not see the horse in the painting like literally they tried to show them this amazing 2D representation of a 3D horse and to their eyes it was simply this mass of brown blurry shit on a flat surface. They were like, what are you showing me this for? What's so great about this? And they're like, it's a horse, it's a horse, the French were saying. And the Islamic lads were going, I see nothing, Shem. I can't see any horse. It's just a load of brown. And the reason is is because of the strict rules that these lads had in their culture about not representing, you know, not drawing anything on a a 2D space, not representing an animal or a person on a 2D space. Their brains had not developed the ability to read a a, a 3D image on a 2D plane. They couldn't see it. They could not visually see the fucking horse. It was just a lump of brown. Isn't that interesting? about human perception and brains so just like the greeks had no word for the color blue therefore they did not see blue the ancient islamic cultures who had never seen a 2d representation of a 3d object simply couldn't see it when it was presented to them because that's what the human brain does isn't that cool the album I would like to recommend on this week's podcast is The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars by David Bowie. Now that might seem like a bit of a basic choice, but I'm aware that people today... <coughs> Excuse the cough. People today... Well, myself included, we, we don't listen to albums anymore. And we might listen to David Bowie, but chances are if you're listening to Bowie on Spotify or iTunes, you're merely picking the best of his tracks and listening to them individually but i would ask you to go and listen to the entire album of ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars because as a start to finish piece it is incredible it's a work of genius and it should only be appreciated i think as a start to finish piece of work it is an entire body of work with a narrative so give that a crack and see what you think of it Last week I recommended Swordfish Trombones by Tom Waits which was met with a mixed response and I can understand that because it's it's Tom Waits' stuff, it's very challenging music, you know Some people just want a, a nice slice of pizza They don't necessarily want an oyster His music is an oyster This has been a, a rather ranty podcast so far which is grand, you know Back in farm, it's 2018 There's nothing long. N- nothing long with a rant there's that's what's known as a friday and slip ladies and gentlemen there is everything long with one of my fucking rants 50 minutes long but i would like to answer some of the beautiful questions that you'd ask me this week now <clears throat> usually what i do for the questions is i'll go on to twitter and i will say to you any questions for this week's podcast but twitter was getting so overcrowded with responses that this week i decided i would ask the questions on patreon because there's a smaller audience of patrons on that who could ask it um if you would like to uh donate a few quid to the this podcast on patreon please feel free to do so you don't have to podcast is still going to go ahead but if you enjoy it and want to give me i don't know a euro or four euro whatever please do you will find it at patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast and what i'm hoping to do because i've got a good few patrons now what i would love to do is use the money that i'm going to get from it and maybe invest in a decent camera and a lighting setup or something like that and have the podcast as it is but maybe try and have a visual one as well do you know have it as on youtube and i think that could be quite cool why not but thank you so much everybody who is contributing on the patreon um Jesus Christ lads, it's, it's, it, this is the first time in 17 years of my career that I'm actually earning money from the internet. Before that, if I was to earn money, it had to be going to RTE hoping that they'd give me a commission to write a television series or doing a bunch of gigs. But in all the time, I've, you know, we've never really earned a lot of money from YouTube to be honest because our highest grossing YouTube videos are on RTE's page and Spotify earns your fuck all and so does iTunes so this is the first time that I'm actually earning a couple of quid where I'm going that's nice I can earn a living off this so thank you so much to everybody who's contributing to the Patreon to you it's just like a euro or whatever and you probably think it's no big deal to me like it's it's fucking huge it really really is and thank you thank you so much so anyway I'll get on to the a few questions from Patreon Eric Fitzgerald asks, I'm reading the gospel according to Blind Boy. A lot of your stories are told from the point of view of a female narrator. Did you conduct any research for this, or did you simply disregard gender when writing these stories? Um There's three or four stories I think that are from the point of view of a female narrator. One story has no gender whatsoever that was deliberate. The the Bourneville Chorus which I read out on a podcast a few weeks ago now because I read that out you automatically hear it in a male voice but if you read it on the page there is no gender in that story at all I didn't want the gender in it I want because because it's the only story in the book that deals with a sexual experience and I didn't want to gender that sexual experience I wanted the viewer to place their respective genitals on the character you know and their finger in a banshee, and I don't know what genitals a banshee has. So just keep the whole thing no gender, just whatever you want it to be. It can be male, female, or whatever in between. It's up to you. But for the few stories that I do have, a female lead, um, what I kind of do—I mentioned a couple of podcasts back about, you know, at the end of the day, lads. Like, uh, look, I'm I'm a man, and I've I've been raised a man and I'm a straight man, and I've grown up with privilege of being a man, so I'm sexist, do you know, I'm not a nasty, misogynistic sexist, and I really want to improve and try my best, but at the end of the day, like, do you know, um, my privilege gets in the way of I can have some quite, quite sexist views. Like if if I'm improving as the years go by through listening to women, but I can make quite a few sexist assumptions that are outside of my awareness because of the world of privilege that I was raised in. So because of this, I'm quite cautious when I'm writing for another gender. So what I do is I try and write with no gender in mind whatsoever. And then at the end, I will decide whether it's going to be a female character or not that's what I prefer to do um, if I deliberately write as a female five minutes in I'm talking about what it feels like to wear a bra do you know what I mean it's just I'm trying to shake that part of myself off but it's good to kind of be honest with yourself about it and then you can change that experience so we will said there's a story a 10 foot hen bending with a female lead character, um, a lot of that is the story is about anxiety, and a lot of it is my own experience with anxiety, with a few details changed. But at the end, I went back and I said, "Okay, this is going to be a female character." Um, for Shovel Duds, the story about a murderer, I did want that to be a female lead. I really did. Uh, I want to for subversiveness because i wanted the we do associate violent murderous thoughts as being a male thing so i wanted them to be a female thing in this particular story but from the start i said even though this is a female character i'm gonna write it without a gender and then change it at the end also as well i had a female editor for this book and that's something i specifically wanted uh, her name was catherine gaff unbelievable fucking editor gave me all the freedom in the world and one of the first conversations I had with her was if I send you anything and there's a hint of misogynism, there's a hint of sexism that I'm not aware of please point it the fuck out to me and help me change it because I don't want to produce work like that that's contributing to a fucking problem that already exists so yeah I try not to write gender at all, I'll change it at the end because of my own innate sexism that I'm not aware of. Marcus Dalton is asking. I'm some lad for sweet pastries and coffee when I'm hungover. But most people dig a big dirty fry. What's your comfort food after a night on the sauce? Um, I, if, uh, first off I rarely will get hangovers. Because I'm a very good boy for preparing the night before. If I have a night of my delicious, beautiful zombie cocktails that I get in Pharmacia in Limerick, which are, they're strong drinks, you know, the the top of a zombie has got a passion fruit full of 100, 100 proof rum. So, there's a chance of a hangover there. What I do is, when I get home, I'll have two pints of water, one pint of dioralite and a banana. And then go to sleep. So when I wake up in the morning. I don't really have that much of a hangover. Then what I'll do. Is I'll have a fruit smoothie. And I'll go for a very gentle run. Not an intense run. But a gentle run. And that sorts out my kind of hangover. Um, If I'm foolish. And get so drunk that I don't prepare the night before. I don't know. I just roll around in pain. And have a coffee. And drink as much water as I can. And feel very sorry for myself and then probably order chicken balls and curry sauce that that happens once a year because I don't like hangovers and I especially don't like the fear people are always asking about the fear what is the fear it's like oh I'm feeling so depressed well yeah you took a lot of depressants last night that's what drink is I'm doing dry January at the moment I'm uh I haven't had any drink in what is it 10 days um not because i feel i need to just because i kind of want to you know a lot of people do dry january so i just wanted to see just to check in with myself what would it be like if i didn't have because i drink maybe if not every weekend every second weekend but i thought let's do it for a month see what happens because i think it's it's a good way to check in with yourself and at the end of the month, if I find that it was difficult, then I might have to ask myself a couple of questions about my relationship with drink. But so far, ten days in, it's grand. Don't really have a craving for it, and I don't really miss it. Um, I also haven't smoked my vape in ten days either, because when I got my little sore throat, I didn't really want this. And then I went, "Fuck it, I'm not, cr- <coughs> I'm not craving it anymore." So I'm off the vape, and I'm off the drink for. 10 days we'll see how long it goes for james coffee asks you said before you have a great interest in cooking and food is there anyone in particular who you like watching or type of food you really enjoy eating um i love watching food vlogs um there's a guy called mark Weens, w-i-e-n-s and he's on youtube and he is a travel and food vlogger And I love his videos. He travels all around the world and goes to cafes and diners and restaurants and street food actually. A lot of street food. And he eats the food and films it. And I get a little bit of a a podcast hug off watching those videos to be honest. And what I love is and his main shtick is that he has this ridiculous fucking face that he pulls when he eats food. This intense orgasmic look in his eye. That you will either hate or love. But it's addictive. So I enjoy Mark Wiens. The Food Ranger is another YouTube channel. He's a Canadian lad with fluent Chinese. And he goes up and down rural China. Eating mad shit. And I love that. I went on a little binge of Keith Floyd. During the week. All his stuff is on YouTube. Keith Floyd was a chef and restaurateur. In the 80s and 90s. And he kind of revolutionized how food was presented on TV. He was the first television chef to take food out of the kitchen. Food programs at that point were just some asshole in front of a camera in a kitchen cooking food. Keith Floyd was like, fuck that, we're going to Spain and we're going to make this dish in the back of a boat and I'm going to get pissed on wine. So if you want some entertaining free shit to look at on YouTube, anything by Keith Floyd the man was a highly entertaining legend regarding cooks um, do you know I, I can't I can't, uh, I can't flaw Jamie Oliver I really can't um, Jamie Oliver r- always brings a little unique twist to any recipe he's doing and when you copy a Jamie Oliver recipe you do notice it when you create it at home you really notice fuck me this is different that little addition of lemon that I didn't think would go into this dish that really fucking works Um, any type of food I like I personally I prefer to cook Italian because Italian is very easily to replicate well at home Indian the same uh, Asian food very difficult to replicate properly at home especially if it's cooked in a wok woks require an unbelievable amount of heat so unless you've got a, a jet wok burner then forget about making decent Asian food at home. So I tend to stick to uh, Sp- Spanish cooking, Indian, uh, fucking Italian cooking. I'd like to say French cooking, but French, I don't know. French is nothing but a lot of fucking meat floating and butter. They can go fuck themselves. Lisa Murphy asks, how do you deal with panic attacks and extreme anxiety that interferes with your day-to-day life and work? uh luckily lisa i'm ten years free of severe anxiety attacks you know i i'm i through the use of the, the daily and regular use of cognitive behavioral therapy transaction and analysis mindfulness um emotional intelligence i'm i'm anxiety free and you know when I say that when I talk about my mental health regime just look at, look at me like some fella who comes in and I've, I've got a ripped body because I go to the gym all the time and eat properly Th- that's, that's all it is I have been mentally eating well and working out every single day for 10 years and that's what's worked for me so I'm free of it but when I was in the throes of severe anxiety and severe depression and I had to try and get on with my life when a full-blown panic attack would happen to me, I did have certain techniques that I would use. The first thing that I would recommend you do is to address the way that you breathe. Chances are, if you're suffering anxiety, you'll find that your breathing is probably, a lot of it is happening in, in your mouth. When we suffer anxiety we take these shallow breaths in our mouth from our mouth and it goes to the top of our chest and we're not, we don't even know we're doing it but your brain isn't, and your muscles are not getting enough oxygen so try and focus your breathing as much as possible now I mean change how you breathe T- to bring the breath in through the nose until you put your hands on your belly and as you breathe in through the nose slowly feel your actual stomach expanding and that's diaphragm breathing and moving your type of breathing from your mouth to your nose where it goes deep into your belly can very much reduce the levels of anxiety that you experience because you're simply getting more oxygen you're not getting those shallow horrible little gaspy breaths that can go along with an anxiety disorder the other thing you can do when a severe anxiety hits you and you want to If your panic attack is up at 10 and you want to bring it down to a 6. Close your eyes. And I want you to imagine. um, Do you remember when you were a kid in school. They had those uh, washing up liquid bottles full of paint. Well imagine a washing up liquid bottle full of black paint. Two litres. Big in your hands. And now imagine an A4 white sheet of paper. Now visualise you slowly pouring this black paint into the middle of this sheet of paper and the black paint very slowly and velvety it fills from the middle of the page all the way out to cover the entire page in nothing but a thick silky viscous black paint and the complexity of that image uh, it kind of it asks so much of your brain that it can de-escalate uh, a panic attack from a 7 to about a 10 and i used to use that a lot it won't solve your problems but it will it will improve your situation you know so that's all i can say in that respect um long term if it's really fucking with your life that much go to go to your therapist go to a counselor uh, access some of the free services the charity services that are available medication might be an option you know i'm not anti-medication it wasn't something for me but everybody is different you know um give meditation a chance see if it works for you it may work it may not work i spoke about exercise last week if you can go for a run that's not a bad thing there's many things out there that you can try and do cognitive behavioral therapy you know it's I'm trying my best here, but at the same time as well, there is a, a sadness and a futility, to doing this because of the lack of services that are available in Ireland. But have a crack at those things I just mentioned. And um, the last question, I'm gonna. What well, I'm only, I'm only answering questions that got a lot of, got likes, on Patreon, but I'm gonna answer more next week. Dennis Limer, they're fucking great questions as well. Thanks very much, lads. Um. Dennis Limer asks, what's the best gig you've ever been to and which band artist do you wish to see had seen live? I'm not mad into live gigs because doing gigs is my job. So, you know, like, I've, I've even festivals. A festival to me is just a big, loud field. But the best gig I've ever been to, I was about 14 or 15 and I would have had very, very severe anxiety and social anxiety. So leaving the house for me was a fucking... Uh, actually... Two, two gigs that I've been to were like this but the first one that I went to that was uh, like this was at the height of me having agoraphobia I couldn't leave my gaff um, going around the corner going into school was difficult but the Flaming Lips were playing uh, up in Dublin somewhere and it was before they were massive so it wasn't uh, it was a small enough venue can't remember what it was it was about maybe 300, 400 so I went up to see the Flaming Lips with... Uh, my brother drove me up um, because I just had to see him. I was listening to their stuff and I had to fucking see him despite my anxiety. <coughs> it was one of the toughest trips I'd ever taken in my life. I remember having to stick my head out the window of the of the car up the motorway and, and vomit out the side of the car because my anxiety was so intense that I was actually leaving the house. That I was full-blown panic attack for the entire journey. It was terrifying coupled with the fear that I was suffering from agoraphobia and I had to be in a crowd full of people at a fucking gig. But I went to see The Flamin' Lips and they had visuals on screen which I'd never seen at a gig. And for that one hour of that gig, my anxiety didn't exist. And it gave me great hope. It was phenomenal. And then I puked all the way home then in the car and had anxiety on the way back. But yeah, The Flaming Lips, the second one, a few years later. <clears throat> as you know, I'm very, very passionate about Bob Dylan. Um, so when Bob Dylan he did a gig in Galway, and I was a teenager, and I was like, okay, I have to, I have to be in in the same breathing space as Bob Dylan. I have to do this for myself. I have to, despite my anxiety, and I had a, just a very, very horrible time, um, being in a massive, massive crowd while. I remember all my clothes just being soaked wet with sweat because my anxiety was so extreme that I was in this crowd full of people terrified that at any moment I'd be crushed to death. And it, was, it wasn't was even a good gig because Bob Dylan doesn't really do good live gigs. So that was awful. But at least I got to go home that night and go to bed and go, I saw Bob Dylan live, it's done. So I'm going to end the podcast on that note. Pretty pos- positive note. um. God bless not literally, metaphorically. Have a wonderful week. Enjoy yourselves, look after yourselves. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. And leave comments in the review section on your respective podcast apps. Have a crack at the Patreon if that's what you feel like. And uh go in peace. Have a lovely have a lovely, lovely week and look after yourselves. Next week I'm going to London this week for some business with some tens and I'll be back and I might have a few London stories next week. Yart.